Josh. Okay. So we yeah, so we're talking 1960. So of right, Dylan's three, like that three greatest albums, right? Was Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde, right? It's those three that are considered the best. I mean, that's subjective. Well, no, of course. Um, I, I understand like, what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. And that was, what year was that, Josh? 65 Six, to 67. Right. So what was going on? I guess I just would like your perspective of what was going on, on the, as like a bigger picture kind of you thing. Mean like in the country? Not necessarily in the country, but within the scene that he was, that Dylan was writing music. So like from fo- from the folk scene. Oh, well, I mean, we're uh, quickly approaching kind of the end of the mainstream folk movement since Dylan goes electric in 65. And uh, we start to see a shift away from folk and start getting a little bit more into psychedelia. So it was kind of the beginning of the end of it. Really, the folk movement was like really late 50s to mid late 60s i mean there was a lot of folk music that still got made after that you know but where it was uh, on the forefront of the time i think you know you're getting out of it because also 65 we're talking british invasions already happened you know we're we're moving forwards into a a lot more of uh you know the classic rock era um yeah i mean after after the newport jazz festival i mean is it away from Bob Dylan kind of started dropping in, in favor. Is it fair to say that that change is kind of like the change of counterculture going from a beat culture, which is like the beats is kind of that same era that you're talking about late fifties, early sixties. Well, the beat, the beat era preceded the folk era. The beat era led into the folk era. So if you read uh, okay. Dave Van Ronk's book, which, which I lent to Matt and he never actually read, he talks about how in the old days of the gaslight cafe, they the the and other cafes in New York and in Greenwich, they used to hire folk musicians to clear rooms because everyone fucking hated folk music, <laughs> and they needed to turn over um, uh, patrons so that they could make more money. So it would go beat poet, beat poet, beat poet, folk musician. And Dave Van Romp joked that if you didn't clear the room, then you were going to get fired. Um, that so, was your job was to create turnover. Yeah, yeah. You were supposed to be like, ah, oh, we don't need this shit. Yeah, and, and so then, like the, people would leave and then they'd come in to see whoever was after you. <laughs> like the right, next group right. of people. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's kind of funny. It's just purely capitalistic motives. That's funny. There's no value of the art of what they were saying. So what, were go- what was going through those musicians' heads? Exactly what you were thinking or you think it was a little dramatized the way the story was presented in the book? I'm, you know, I'm sure it's a little bit dramatized, but I, I would imagine, you know, you're not singing folk music, especially in like the late 50s, early 60s, unless you really like folk music, you know, like yeah. there, there, there's because there's no there's no fucking money. In it. I mean, we're, we're talking about a point in time in music where there's barely money in it anyway. Um, so you're really not doing it unless you genuinely enjoy it. So I, I highly doubt you give a shit. It's another place to gig and it's a place to hang out where other musicians hang out and, you know, talk shit. Yeah, oh, OK. I mean, you're like a musician's musician at that point, right? You're doing it for the love of the music, just because you you like. Yeah, I mean, this is how Dave Van yeah. Ronk became the mayor of McDougal Street because he was established early. He had an apartment 
in in the Lower East Side, which was which you know not a lot of musicians did because they were oftentimes broke. And other musicians who rolled into town would like sleep on his couch, hang out. He would show him the ropes, get him with gigs at, at joints and then, you know, kind of keep it moving. So it was it was about it was about the musicianship of the time. And so I guess what you're what I'll take away from your perspective is that those that era of Dylan's music, those three records kind of was signaling a, a change of the counterculture away from folk and more to psychedelia i think the word you said was well yeah i i really think it's 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 more so bigger music coming away from dylan because dylan once he achieved mainstream success it wasn't really about folk music anymore it was about dylan and people just so tightly tied dylan to the concept of folk music and he represented it so in such a large and iconic way that I think that just became it and where he moved folk music moved, even though traditional folk music didn't, but the commercial aspect of it did because everyone's trying to catch lightning in a bottle and be Bob Dylan. Yeah. That's the time, what, what people called folk music. was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, you know, like Dave and Ron came out with like true folk albums all through the sixties. And a lot of people did Tom Paxson came out with albums all through the sixties. Like everyone, you know, a lot of people still did, but it's not where, you know, the, like the mainstream side of folk music really was anymore. Is, is this the only time we see this phenomena in folk music, in music history? I feel like that's not the case. Where, well, we're, oh, go ahead. Uh, so where you have an artist who gets so associated with the identi- identity of a genre of music that he or she themselves is able to shift it so far away to make it something away from what it originally was? Or is that just something that maybe Dylan had that kind of power? He had that kind of ability to have an impact. Was that seen at other times from other artists? And that's kind of a big question now that I think about it, because I don't know if I know the answer. I mean, you are. I mean, so like the first part of that question, I mean, oh, I guess, or do you mean like in folk music or you mean just like in no, music? No, just music like in, in general. It's like, it, did that yeah. happen in rock? Did that happen in jazz? Did it happen in... Well, I mean, I guess the there? first place, you, I mean, the first place you got to start to answer that question, right, is I guess like, because you're saying like, if you if you assume that like that Bob Dylan was the commercial face of folk music or like the, the popular face, of, however you want to call it, right? Uh-huh. Um I mean, the all the other examples of that, like the first one that jumped out of my mind was that like, was like Kurt Cobain being like the face of That's grunge, a good example. So talk right? about it, you know, or, um, but so like, I, I, I don't want to get there yet. Like I just, but like, there's a couple of other examples I could think of. Like, that's probably the big one though, where like a guy, where like one guy is associated with a genre, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the other I don't know if you can call it a genre, but, but kind of the way that Jimi Hendrix is like singularly thought of as like, you know, when it comes to like electric guitar, like lead guitar. Okay. You know what I mean? I, so like there, the, yeah. Okay. I, that's yeah. where I would make the distinction. Like you're talking about Hendrix within the context of an instrument I'm talking about in yeah. the context of a genre. Yeah. And so like, I mean that, that affects a lot of genres there, but so, I mean, let's stick with Kurt Cobain there, I guess for a second. Um, I, I mean, the difference really, though, is that like before there wasn't like Bob Dylan didn't invent folk music. <laughs> you know what I mean? People were playing folk music way before. I mean, not that Kurt Cobain invented grunge, but um, 
it uh, almost it was, nobody who gets famous for a genre it came anywhere near inventing the genre. Yeah. Um, so then, who preceded Nirvana then in creating grunge? Chances are you'll find a lot of like small time Seattle acts that Nirvana was around that did something. That's well, a lot of times well, how that kind of shit goes. I mean, really what it is, is I mean, the thing is Nirvana was one of the first bands that they called grunge. Grunge is just like what they, what like, I think magazines and, and, and publications like MTV and shit would like, they needed a label, they needed a genre. And this sounded a little different than anything anyone had done before. So we got to call it something else. We're going to call it grunge. Um, but I think like the ancestry of, if you like trace the lineage of that sound, it, it goes back to like hardcore punk bands, I think. Okay. Um, you know, it's like, it's like the rejection of, of it, it's like the antithesis of the eighties, right? The, the kind of uh, super done up, super glam, super poppy, super like image centric rock. It, you know, the, uh, you know, the reaction to that, right? The, the mm -hmm. exact opposite, the antithesis of that, right? Is just like you strip all of the, you know, uh, image and facade and everything that like all the, the everything that looks pretty away. And it's just like raw and, and, and gritty. And, and that's, you know, what punk was. That's what hardcore punk was. And that's what like became grunge. And that was like what, like, I think, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure Kurt Cobain or like the members of Nirvana ever called themselves grunge. Like they never like referred to themselves as a grunge band. Hey, I think, uh, I think um, Dave Grohl said that like, they just started calling us grunge. So that's what we were. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was like an industry created term, yeah, okay. you know? And like, I mean, you could probably, you could probably make the argument that like all genres to a, to a certain point, right. Are, industry created i mean right uh, when you boil it down yeah 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 i yeah. well i respect that point but you know really i mean for the purpose of a of a guy to organize a a, a record store right? right if you if you want to put the the jazz albums with the jazz albums you got to have we got to have common language and what the call stuff really but so okay yeah that, that kind of answers my question any thoughts josh never no, well, yeah oh okay I, I believe it hey i just wanted to welcome everybody this is you can't be serious i'm joined with my buddies matt and josh hey everybody yo you just jumped in i just had a thought and i knew that about dylan's career i knew that josh would be the man to ask about it i just wanted you all to just you know have i didn't realize that was the thought that you were gonna because that wasn't what we were talking about no this is not what we were talking about for for the night but i just want no, not about not even for the night it's not even what we were talking about before we we, we got on that's not the conversation you and i were having it kind of was we talked we, we were talking about really the, the rate at which people put out music that's kind of how we got on okay that, but yeah. oh and you know that's actually kind of now that you're thinking about it, that's kind of something worth also exploring um josh we were talking about just how many songs i guess that's the reason why we're talking about that yeah. era of dylan right you yeah say it, was more just, it was the idea that all three of those albums all came out like in a span of like 13 months or like or 14 there was like a year or just over a year or something like that and just yeah, the, elton john was the same way there was a lot of people like it wasn't just him i mean what's crazy about dylan is that those three albums happen to be like regarded as like his top three albums 
Um, but like, it wasn't weird for people to put out music at like what would be considered today a ferocious rate. Like, I will, I will die on the hill. That tangled up in blue is still his best. Or sorry, blood on the tracks is still his best album. Okay, I will die. I will die on funny. that hill. But okay, I, understand, I, I understand. Sure, yeah. but like, I mean, I'm hey, good, the, those good. three are going to be yeah. in the conversation. Oh, you're gonna, sure. you're yeah. gonna have to argue against those three albums. You know, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, but just the idea, like outside of that, right? Just the idea that they're, they're if if an artist puts out, you know, two album or one an album a year, an album a year is like a a good rate. That's like a fast rate of 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 an artist putting music out. I feel like these days in in, in like twenty twenty one. Do you agree? Disagree? Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, maybe you could say. I mean, now. I mean, Taylor Swift is the one that comes to mind who's kind of recently put out two back-to-back albums quickly. How so? so that's she, exactly who I was thinking too. Yeah. How closely together? I think were the her first one. Used? I think the. I think uh, what Evermore. What was it? Was it Evermore? And then I can't remember what the but one was in like May and one was in like November. Okay. Right. So I mean, that's pretty. That's quick. I think they were probably recorded in the same session. Did, um, they, did they have a similar sound? The two records. I'll be honest, I haven't listened to them. Okay. I, I listened, I think I listened to the the newest one and the see even the, that though is a pretty old school concept, recording two albums in the same session and releasing them as separate things. Yeah. Is, is that really even, old school? Yeah, I mean that's what Zappa did so. with overnight sensation and apostrophe. You I know, it that's the way I didn't know that. So yeah. I mean I, I knew artists did that, but I didn't know that's what he did for those art for those albums. Um I, I mean Zeppelin I mean Zeppelin never did it on purpose, but they would they would reuse stuff from old sessions on their, you know, records. yeah. Um, which sometimes happens, right? Sometimes happens. Um, but we were talking about the impact that post-production has on all of Yeah. This. And so like what we were, what I was, what the hypothesis, right. That I came up with was that in, you know, 1965, 1967, 1970 like that era right where you kind of had a lot of artists putting out a lot of albums quickly like one one every 10 months maybe you know maybe sooner than that um and not like doing a mega recording session and then spreading it all out i mean like actually recording albums like that um part of it i think was just due to just the the fact that there was just a lot less done in post-production in a lot of those recordings not to say that there was none, right? But I think now, like, with, like, a your standard, you know, pop song or whatever of the day, um, a lot more work goes into it beyond just playing the instruments, singing the songs. Um, I mean, yeah, and also the, the actual recording process took longer. Um I would venture a different hypothesis, though. My guess would probably be more about touring. Ah. Because the way the way the music industry works today in regards to the nope, album I know where you're going. touring yep. Yep. Di- dichotomy is very mm-hmm. different from how it operated and how, 40, how is 50 it years ago. That's a really well, good point. back in the day, you made your money on selling copies of your album. So mm-hmm. tours used to just be... I mean, they were cheap as shit to get into concerts back in the day. You could see, you could see Nirvana in the '90s for like ten dollars, right? Probably less the, than that. Yeah. Because the idea was, you're gonna, 
by the records and the margins we're going to make are on the records and will you know be relatively flat on the concerts to get you to buy more records the concert was a marketing event to to promote the record and right. then we all then we all and downloaded then, limewire oh yeah and, uh, <laughs> today touring is what makes the money because the, there's so much margin packed into each individual ticket the cheapest seat in madison square garden is 65 dollars, yeah. and that's the yeah. cheapest seat you'll buy so uh. today you put out albums to generate yourself touring a reason uh, to tour revenues yeah. a reason to tour yeah so I, I mean, I don't know offhand how long that's actually the average really, touring schedule is really good point. today versus 50 years ago, but I'm willing to bet that's a pretty big impact because yeah. the rigorous nature of it too. I mean, like you see tours nowadays are like, they're fucking quick and you might end up playing multiple shows in cities to beat yeah. out on uh, scalpers or help curb demand. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. like ridiculous. Yeah. I know a lot of bands that we go see, they all play multiple shows, Philadelphia, New York. And I, and I never really had a perspective of how much of the impact that yeah. them not selling records is. Yeah. I almost wish that everybody would start buying records again. If you're in the studio recording records, you can't be out on the road playing shows. And if you're out on the road playing shows, that's time that you're not spending in the studio recording and writing music. There so, is some good music has come written on the road. Sure, some like no, that's totally. What, I also think might, you know some guys might just be more beat from a rigorous touring schedule mm-hmm. that they might just not feel like they have time to sit down and write shit. You know, that's the other mm-hmm. thing. You know, Dylan and I, and Elton John came up with tons of records, obviously while they were touring. But yeah. I mean, I just can't imagine how much intense, much more intense it is today to do that shit than it must have been when they were they were going about it. See, I also wonder because I, I, what I was telling Mitch was that I think that if in my opinion i think if bob dylan were alive today if he were like 25 years old right now right bob dylan is very alive today um yeah yeah if he were and like still tw- touring yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so let me rephrase it if he were like young in his if you were in if, if 1967 bob dylan could just be transported to today right um I, i'm not sure he would have a record a, a traditional record deal i think he'd be a guy who is just like be releasing like ridiculous amounts of stuff on like Bandcamp or on like uh, SoundCloud or whatever, just putting out ferocious amounts, volumes of music. Maybe you would have a record deal, but like it wouldn't be. Uh, I, what I was getting at is I think the, that where you see uh, the high volume of like people releasing music isn't in like the. Uh, isn't from like major recording studios and from isn't from major record companies. You see that from like people on you, you and me, right? Recording stuff and uploading it on, on the internet. That's where you see like the high volume of stuff of people putting out like, you know, two albums a year or, or, or like recording, you know, hundreds of songs, like, you know, whatever you want to call an album at, at this point, because it's, it's all digital, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I still think touring has a lot to do with the two, especially because Today, we also have a lot of collaborations, and that's part of the marketing of it. You know, Corey Wong's going to de- you know, have a solo on some guy's record, and, and you well, know, so- Jay-Z is going to be on somebody. But if their touring schedules conflict, and it's like, we're doing this with uh, Beyonce, like we need to have Beyonce. Yeah. Beyonce won't be free for another six weeks. You're delaying the project to get Beyonce. So, I mean, like, I mean, everything that you just said, I think that's all valid, and I think that's a, a, probably a big part of it. But what I was getting at is I think – before, like in, in 1965, right? If you were a musician and you wanted to sell your music, 
you had to do you had to do both things. You had to do you if you if you want you had to write the music, you had to record, and then you also had to go and tour to promote it. Not every not every musician like loves doing both of those things. There's some musicians, right? Like a lot of bands uh, that 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 are like still touring now from like the the 60s and 70s just love playing, right? Mm-hmm. And so the touring side of stuff is, is kind of what they and that's why they still play there's i think there was a lot of musicians though historically who they're like they felt more at home and there was and they were more comfortable writing music recording music but they hated touring and 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 all that stuff and i think those people right i I think like now there is an option to you can just put out a ton of music uh and, and just record music and not have to tour rigorously if you don't want to. If, if you just want to write music purely for the sake of writing music, which I think there are historically some artists who, you know, people might describe as, you know, being troubled or, or whatever. Like Kurt Cobain, for example, being one of, he had a real tough time with like uh, being in the spotlight and being famous and be like, he didn't want it. He's just like, that's a big issue for him. Yeah. And so I don't think, uh, I think part of uh, why you don't see um, mm-hmm. people like that in like uh, the main in like mainstream music and like you know under uh, big record labels is because they they've chosen that a different route and and they've gone uh, you know they're able to do their own thing and just write their own music and and. I yeah no I I agree and I also want to ask you guys one other thing before we actually move into today's topic. Uh, do you guys have any opinions on since we're talking about Bob Dylan on the fact that he uh, sold his entire music catalog's rights? Uh, no. no. How opinion. much? Yeah, Three hundred million dollars. That's not. I feel like he. Well, hold I on, feel hold like on. that person got off a of steep. That that's not enough money. He should ask for million more. Dollars. The whole catalog. Oh no, Mitch. Three hundred million dollars is a lot of fucking money. I I I also just value the Dylan's collect. I, like, I couldn't even put a number on what, that. Uh, man. I guess what? Uh, can't even put a. How number do they on come it. to that value? I don't fucking know. I'm sure they have an algorithm or some. Who bought shit. it? Was it just some guy? Uh, just Universal like... Music Group. Oh, okay. That shouldn't mean that. Nobody should own that stuff, man. That's he's one of those guys, at least for me. There's like certain there's certain pieces of music you don't just own. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just getting. Well, that's just you being a hippie. Yeah, it's just me that's just you being a hippie. hippie. Like, that's I fine. Mean, I'm good with that. I mean, somebody owns every piece of music, Mitch. I know. until it's in the public domain. That's what I exactly. I he should automatically. Go Eventually, to it will domain. be, but not yet. Yeah. Somebody's and got what's the, some... What's the time? What's the how long is that for public domain? Oh, they they keep extending it because Disney keeps lobbying for them to extend it. So it used to be well because they're making money on a bunch of old shit. So they're like, (laughs) so I think I it used to be like ninety some odd years, and now I think it's the lifetime of the author plus thirty or some shit like that. I we should campaign against that shit. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's like a ridiculous amount of time. That is so obnoxious. Nobody should be making money off of anything that that that's that old. It should be everybody's property. Fuck that. All right, yeah, I do sound a lot like a hippie right now. Yeah. But I think it's a strong argument, though. Yeah, yeah. I really do. I mean, 120 years from date of creation. 
That's a 120 years from date of creation. Whew. So if I had to put a number, I think it's so be in 20, 80. like in 2080, 2090, right? That's when Bob Dylan will enter the public domain. I guess so. I don't even, I, that's so far in the future. And that's, that's assuming they don't change the, the rules between now and then. And they will. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, because Universal Music Group's going to be making a ton of money off of that Bob Dylan catalog. Yeah, we're about to see a lot of Pepsi commercials with Bob Dylan songs in them. Now, now you've just made oh, me is hate that, this. Oh, is that, what, is that what, are we gonna, you're totally right. There's going to be Bob Dylan. There's going to be like, we're going to start seeing, uh, right? You're going to, you're going to see a commercial with like a Pepsi can, like flowing in the wind. And it's going to be how many roads must a man, and it's just this Pepsi can just drifting along. And yeah. then at the end, Blowing in the wind, and the Pepsi can lands in 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 Kyrie Irving's hand, and he takes a sip. And I don't think it'll be camera. Pepsi. I think I think it'll be Coke. It'll be Coca Cola. It was the first company I thought. But of. it'll be Coca Cola. Pepsi beat my yeah. But that'll be, be that'll be Coca Cola. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> um, or Budweiser, or like Budweiser. Yeah, Budweiser. Um. Not now, Budweiser. Budweiser will use something a little bit, a little bit more country, like Girl from North Country Fair or something. Okay. Like that. Okay. Yeah. So are we just gonna are we are we predicting now that like all of the Super Bowl commercials next year are going to feature Bob Dylan? Let's play a game. Let's play a game. Let's match a company to what Bob Dylan song. I don't want to play this game. I don't no, know. No, no, no. We well, we've already just knocked out. We've just knocked out two pretty easily. Dude, well, there's so many Bob Dylan songs. Well, and there's so many it's companies. A, that uh, makes it easier. Yeah, I don't, right, I'll spend I don't on the think company. I know enough Bob Dylan songs to to adequately associate with companies. Okay, so I'm asking you to step too far outside of your comfort zone. I'm yeah, good. I think. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was, gonna, I was gonna say I'll save this. I'll save it for another time. Save it for say, another let, time. Let, let's get into what we were actually going to talk about today. What are we going to talk about? I don't know, bitch. This was your idea. <laughs> so, segueing from last week in when we had discussed uh, the legalization of drugs, um, it got me thinking of a time where the government had another interaction with a controlled substance. And that was uh, prohibition, which is about a hundred years ago. Uh, last year, it was the hundred year anniversary, I believe. Right. Cause 2020, 1920, I believe is when they passed. Is that it. when they passed the Volstead act? I, I think that is when they passed the Volstead act. That's what they called it, right? Yes, I did, the I did, a, I did yes, a little bit of reading up before this episode. Yes. I did a, I did a, I did a tidbit, tidbit of research. Yes. As I did a, a little bit as well. But I figured we should just uh, do a little reflection on it. And what I was really happy to find out as I was doing some research for this episode is how coincidentally well-timed this topic is because of how much um, the history of prohibition has to do with the history of women's suffrage and women's rights in Women's History Month, too. So we can really just cover a lot of good ground with this uh, with this topic. Um and uh, you, you were saying you were doing some research there, Matt. Anything you know strike out to you, you know, right off the top that interested you? So a bunch of things. I like I think uh, the the thing that kind of like shocked me the I mean, maybe not shocked me the most, but was it like after after prohibition, people who had uh, supported it in the beginning, right? there's a lot of people who like openly admitted that like, yeah, it didn't work. Um, it didn't achieve the, the desired results, you know, to, to get people to, to stop drinking and to try to, you know, lower uh, like 
husbands beating their wives and shit like that. Like it all, you know, the, I think the one quote I think I read was, uh, I think it was Rockefeller. I think he was a big proponent. Uh, he like supported it. In, I believe he did too. Yes. Um, and I think he was, he said like, yeah, just the saloons became speakeasies and like it introduced a bunch of crime that like we didn't think about. And so like, it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I mean, it kind of hinted, I mean, like it, not hinted, I mean, it showed, right? Uh, that was kind of a firsthand uh, example of kind of what we were talking about last week in the hypothetical that like, you know, simply outlawing stuff doesn't necessarily prevent people from doing it or, or from, or address necessarily the underlying issues. And so you kind of have to ask yourself like, well, what, what are we trying to accomplish by, by abolishing this substance or by, by doing whatever? And, and then ask yourself, well, is actually abolishing it, making it illegal, does that help solve this problem? If the government says it's not okay, how much does that actually yeah. help? Yeah, and so I mean, like, I get, you know, like, I, I, whether you agree or not, don't yeah, agree. Right. I mean, I get the, uh, the thinking, you know, like, oh, let's try it. But then at, at the, there was a lot of people who supported it, right? Who were, who in retrospect, upon analyzing all that happened because of prohibition, during prohibition, said, yeah, it didn't work. Mm hmm. That was the first thing that jumped out at me. Right, right, really. right. And then, so it's an interesting read on what how it all went down because do you think that the failure of prohibition was predetermined before they passed it? Do you think it was something yeah. that was like Yeah, well, because I think, I mean, I think it all comes... Because that's like, because I've actually, in reading a couple of opinions of historians, actually not reading, watching a couple of opinions of historians, mm-hmm. um, some historians look at it as the group the the dries mm-hmm. so the, you know the, the wets and the dries yeah. was so yeah. like the way that we call people red and blue now yeah, i well, think back then it was you were either a wet, wet or, or a dry. dry yeah so there are some historians that cite the dries inability to make meet any middle ground with the wets as the reason to why the act fell because, or, it, was, because it was so so like my way or the highway kind of thing. Yes. Like, like everything had to be illegal. You couldn't even allow I mean, that's any beer that's like well, so, 2%. I, so I get where you're, so I think where that bit them uh, was where it crossed into, because I think where it actually, where, where prohibition really started to fall apart was when they, they started, because uh, not only was, you know, they wanted to ban all drinking alcohol. They wanted, they, what they started doing was they started like poisoning, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like industrial alcohol, like ethyl alcohol and adding all kinds of stuff to it that would like make it poisonous to drink. And there was, I, I think it was, there was like thousands of people who, who ended up, who died from drinking, uh, like denatured alcohol. Um, and like, that was a kind of like the final, the final straw that broke the camel's back or whatever, I think where, where people were like, wait, the government's poisoning the alcohol. They'd rather us die than like, that's ridiculous. And so like, it was just kind of, it all culminated in that. But I think going back, I, I think it was to answer your question. I think it was like doomed to fail from the start because the, what they did didn't, it didn't address, like, I think they were well-intentioned, right? If you, if you look at, kind of you know they weren't just saying we don't want people to drink because like we were party poopers you know mm-hmm. there was like um 
I think in a line, like a, a, a good intentions, they just didn't have the knowledge that, that we do now. Right. They just, uh, I think a, a lot of like, uh, they were like, like, uh, is it temperance? Right. Is that what I want to say? Is yes. it like temperance yeah. movements? Right. I think a lot of them were around the idea that like, uh, drinking, uh, they didn't like the idea that, you know, drinking or the men spent time like, uh, at the bar getting drunk rather rather than spending time with their families <clears throat> and they would like go home and beat their wives whatever because they were drunk uh and that's like the stereotype of of i think just uh, a drunken you know like tough old you know old-timey guy whatever um and so like the idea of wanting to reduce domestic violence and increase you know parental participation all like those are all I, I think if you I think if you said those things, like I think all those things, yeah, those things sound great. Like, yeah, we want less domestic violence and we want, you know, fathers spending time with their families. Like, yeah, we want that. That's, that all sounds great. Um, it was it was just wrapped up in the wrong package. You know what I mean? I think today, today, kind of like where we're starting to see uh, where we're starting to see it, you know, addressed as like a, a mental health issue. Right. Where it's a mm -hmm. where it's a hey, we need uh, more resources for 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 families and we need more better education and we need things like that rather than just, oh, we just got to fucking get rid of all the bad stuff. Um, what that doesn't do is it doesn't get rid of the. The the need or the drive that was causing people to go want to do those bad things in the first place. And so it's exactly what happened in during prohibition. Right. Mm -hmm. When you sit when when they said, oh, you can't sell alcohol legally anymore what pe people didn't say oh i'm gonna stop drinking and go spend time with my family the people who were drinking at the bar just said well i'm gonna go get drunk at the speakeasy now instead right and like where did the speakeasy get liquor from now instead of buying it from like a, the legal liquor guy he bought it from the mob mm -hmm. and so like the it just forced all of that behavior underground and it's a good point in that the beginning of the movement, the beginning of the temperance movement was so well intended because mm -hmm. I think one of the, another fact that struck out to me was something that I need to keep in, in mind for myself as an American is how deeply rooted alcohol is in our culture and in the, in our nation necessarily. You know, the, when you read, read or watch any documentary about prohibition, the first fact they talk about is how much beer the Mayflower brought over when the first settlers came over here. It was like a shit ton of beer. They were dropping statistics in Ken Burns' prohibition documentary about how much liquor was drank by the average American back then as compared today. And it's like quadruple the amount. You were drinking alcohol at breakfast. You were drinking alcohol mm -hmm. at lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, I, so like uh, when you like take, you know, take a second to put yourself within the perspective of that worldview of what alcohol is doing, it totally makes sense why this movement began in the early 1800s for people to stop drinking as much alcohol so they can start taking care of their families. You were going to say? Well, what I was going to say is I think you got to take those statistics where they start talking about like, oh, people drink all of this alcohol, like with a grain of salt. Because, I mean, yeah, they were drink they people drank more alcohol, but it it wasn't like they, 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 they opened up the refrigerator and went, do I want to grab a, a glass of cold, refreshing water or a, a cold, frosty beer? And they grabbed the beer. The choice was drinking like dirty water mm -hmm. or drinking alcohol. 
Well, and that and alcohol was weaker back then. Yeah, and oftentimes the containers part, yeah. of alcohol, as in the glasses that you would drink from, stuff like that was also smaller. Like, look, look, if you look at how big a martini glass was in like the it, 1920s versus how big it is today, it is comically different. Yeah, they're, they're, um, yeah, they're like buckets now. Yeah, that's the other thing is that like, so. But alcohol was also significantly weaker back weaker, then. Weaker. We've really yeah. refined the process. Yeah. And it was around the 1850s, 1840s when we started making a lot of bourbon. We started making a lot of rye. We started importing a lot of rum. Yeah. Right. And so, and so I, the. Um, now your beer becomes a rye or a whiskey or mm-hmm. something. And so like, I, so I, what I actually read, what, what I, what I found in my readings was, was that it wasn't until really after prohibition that, or after, after the, the uh, re- repealing or the, re- like when they got rid of prohibition, yeah, repealing, could, yeah, yeah repealing, um, that like the, the real stick, any stigma around out, al- that was when any stigma around alcohol just like went out the door. There was no like, and and every year since then, like like more and more, like a higher percentage of of adults, like over the age of eighteen, like say they drink alcohol, mm-hmm. um, and there isn't really any kind, of, like no one, there is no like stigma around in drinking alcohol the same way that there is for other substances or for other uh, other vices. Do we think that stigma existed in the early eighteen hundreds? From my reading, it made it sound like it did. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there. I think it probably did, in, in, but I think it, it did for different reasons. And what, were, what would be those reasons? I think it was what we talked like, I think that there was like, the, it was like the stereotype of, uh, you know, the, of uh, maybe, maybe that's the same reason as today, you know, just being like lazy and, and, and well, and because like I said, I think that it was really a part of a lot of, it was a part of enough women's lives for them to start this movement in the beginning of the 1800s, right? And then you had all these women, they would go out onto the streets and protest. They would pray in, the, in front of these taverns, mm-hmm. get down and pray on their knees. Apparently back in the day, that shit was blasphemy. Like you weren't allowed to do that. And they, they said there was one story that these women were praying in front of this. It was a pharmacy. That's another thing, prescribing alcohol back in the day. Can we talk about that for a second? Well, so that's how they, I think that's how some people got away, oh, got around yeah. prohibition was that they would, they had i read that there was there actually was medicinal alcohol there was a shit ton of medicinal alcohol but before i get we get into yeah, that yeah, one, yeah, yeah. so the, these these ladies are praying for that these these pharmacists to stop prescribing alcohol and they yeah. got people to they got pharmacists to just stop prescribing alcohol they went in there and they said look you're giving all this alcohol and all of our husbands are coming home and they're like beating us and can't take care of us can you please stop giving it to them Except they didn't have to say please, which leads into my favorite lady, uh, one of my favorite ladies of all time, that lady Carrie Nation. I was, I was this talking, one you told me about. Yeah, yeah. the one I saw. Do you know who that is, Josh? Not a fan. So this this lady, she was from Kansas. She had a terrible life. Um, her first husband, like either like died from alcohol poisoning or or died from something, and the second husband beat her, and they got a divorce. So. She was a lady that just dedicated to her life after that experience with alcohol to getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. And after like trying peacefully to get alcohol to be banned, she didn't have success. So she resorted to just going into saloons and into pharmacies with a hatchet and hammers and just smashing everything. And, and because she down. was a late, well, first off at that point in time to see a lady in a saloon 
by a bunch of men that was so taboo that like they were just shook from that already mm -hmm. like they had no idea what to do let alone coming in with a fucking hatchet just <laughs> fucking bringing the hammer down just smashing shit they said that that she would receive hammers in the mail as birthday presents from people wow. which is crazy uh, unfortunately one of the things about her movement is that it was very flash in the pan like mm -hmm. she went around for like two years doing this and then just like no momentum was gained from it. I actually, and I think she started doing it right before the civil war. And I think like the civil war came along and then that was the other, that was another thing that yeah, I that's really, a bigger deal. Let's tackle this thing first. Then we'll come back to this. And you know, and you yeah. know how often temperance was uh, of temperance linked the outlaw of slavery with the banning of alcohol. Those were often very hand in hand at that point in time did you know that i didn't realize that no so is that how they is that how like they would present those two yes they would present like, them that was how they got written as like legislation like it was like they would pr pass bills and say like or try to That's, pass well, bills and say mm -hmm. and say like all right well if you're going to ban slavery then you also can't drink well not not as like a, a tactic but more so as like that was like their political message to get people into their party was Hey, we are the temperance movement. We're a progressive movement that's for bettering the nation. Oh, I got and there's you. It was, two things I got that you. It was we the other way around. Yeah. It was a, it was a. Hey, you don't like slavery? Guess what else you shouldn't like? like you also, also shouldn't like, like drinking. drinking. Exactly. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. Which is also huh. interesting. It, which I also kind of now, it, knowing that fact, yeah. I also kind of understand why that temperance movement was coming out of yeah. the United States in the early 1800s. You have all this, all this slavery everywhere. You have yeah. all these drunk men all over there. And you're like, you know, someone that's just sitting at home and you're like, what the fuck's going on in my country? This is supposed to be landed free. Yeah. Why are all these like drunk white men fucking just causing all this havoc? We need to stop the drunk white. Men. Yeah. We need to stop that. We just huh. need to stop that. But, but yeah, it's huh. really, really, really cool stuff. But we were talking about medicinal alcohol. How much reading did you? Did not much, not, not much. much. So all that I saw that I didn't see anything legitimate about it. it just seemed like a like a loophole. It seemed like a I see what I read was that pharmacies would sell medicinal wine. It was like like like, you know, 15 or 20 percent. Mm -hmm. And uh, but they had but to like justify it being medicine, they gave it a quote medicinal flavor, whatever the fuck that means. What does that even mean? I don't know. I don't know. But like, I don't know. But, I mean, this is also the time, though, when, like, I correct me, I don't know when Coke took the Coke out of Coke. Oh, it had to have been around this time. But, like, but like, so, like, I don't, do you know the history of Coca-Cola? Like, what, like they, what, it, what it started out as? Was it, was it a medical company? Well, no, 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 no. I, I mean, I like, so, so, this guy, he, uh, he was trying to make a patent medicine, and, uh, which are just, like, fucking seltzers with like herbs and fucking shit in it that you would like oh it makes you feel good it was a time when there was no fda so you right, could just, yeah you could just put so you roots just, in water and yeah, be like yeah. you just be like oh this is a tonic that'll make you feel invigorated and people <laughs> went oh this is great um so what he did was he took he took uh cocoa leaves right like that you make cocaine out of um mashed them all up uh mixed it with uh Oh, he, he put it uh, in in uh, in wine. He, he mixed it with wine and uh, and sugar, I think. Um, and so it was just cocaine wine, and that was what co that's what the, that was like what he sold as 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 Dude, like that was medical his, technology. That was his his patent medicine at first, 
And then like the temperance movement came along and was like, yeah, you can't put alcohol on anymore. He's like, all right, I'll take the wine out, but I can't just do the cocaine. Cause like that, it, it tasted bitter or whatever. So he added like, this like cola nut or whatever that was like sweet and syrup, whatever, Coca Cola. Like, well, and, that, and that's how, that's how you about. get it. Yeah. 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 But um, I think that story paints the backdrop for but it, what, but it started, what off, it started what medicine, off as just medical. cocaine wine. It was just cocaine wine. And the dude wanted to prescribe it as medicine. What do you think that Not was? Prescribe just- it. No, no, no. You would oh, just yeah. like he would roll up into town with his wagon, uh. open up at the back and go, <laughs> come get some cocaine wine. It'll, and then people would get people would get it and go like, wow, I feel invigorated. I feel great because they were fucking high on cocaine and drunk off of wine. <laughs> like. Yeah, I would feel that way too. <laughs> yeah. Traveling salesmen yeah. of the yeah. 1800s rolling in the towns, yeah. claiming to do crazy things yeah. with ridiculous stuff. But I think it, but however, you make the point in that Coca Cola was not in terms of being prescribed at, you know, at no, pharmacies. I mean, it, there's but, no, yeah. no one today would call no, it no, medicinal, no, no. But, but it was but, medicinal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, what I'm, and what I'm saying is, is that alcohol was very medicinal yeah. back then. From what from what I saw, and more so than I had realized. Like you go to the doctor and they write you a prescription for whiskey. Yeah. Well, so I think so. I think a lot of that also had to do with advances in like <laughs> pain management and things like that. Because I mean, you're you're right. I mean, like they would prescribe. Like, yeah, you you. That was a big your leg way. hurts. Drink some whiskey. Yeah. yeah, your leg won't hurt anymore. <laughs> sure, doc. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, I feel. I mean, at some to some degree, you got to feel kind of bad for old timey doctors because, like, I mean. They didn't know anything. They, I mean, like, fucking. That's what they were taught. Yeah, I guess. Really. And I mean, like, hey, if your leg hurts and you drink a bottle of whiskey, I'll bet you after that bottle of whiskey, your leg, you're probably not caring about that leg as much. No, definitely like, not. You know, so I mean, no, definitely not, you know, or if you tell a doctor like, hey, you know what? I've got headaches. Right. And he prescribes you cocaine. Like, you probably don't have any headaches anymore. You're like, fucking, we're good to go, doc. Let's, <laughs> you know, so. So we, we so we're talking about how like kind of like legitimate this movement seemed like at the beginning. You know, everything's all messed up. I think intentions. And, I and think intentions, intentions were totally like it was well. It was a well intentioned movement. But but so now like now we get into the part of, of the history of it of like when it actually starts to become like law. Yeah, and it like actually gets traction in Washington. Mm-hmm. And the readings I did pointing to this dude named Wayne Wheeler. Do you, did you see his name too? So I, I so the the drunk history episode of about Wayne Wheeler is a fantastic one. Okay, it is. Um, yeah, tell me about it. Well, I mean, it, I mean, you're gonna you probably know the story better than I do, but like the guy, he he, I think he got got when he was a, a child or something like that. He had like a farmhand who who uh, who, who hit him with a hit him with a pitchfork or yeah, something like that, and he was drunk. And like when he was very young, he was traumatized and just vowed at like a very early age, like alcohol's bad it causes things like that to happen. Like me to get stabbed with a pitchfork. And so I'm going to dedicate my life to making sure nobody else drinks. Uh Like, and that's just like, was his sole mission. Uh, So, I mean, I get it. Like, I mean, if I was, you know, 10 years old and got stabbed by a drunken farmhand, I'd probably be like, yeah, fuck, fuck that guy. But now fast fast forward to when he, starts to actually actualize that plan what does the junk history episode say about that part or is that where you start phasing out he was the dude was a conniving fuck is what he was so he was the one he was one of the dudes that took that temperance movement and shrunk it all down to just alcohol bad 
That's the only thing he campaigned on. Yeah. It was just alcohol bad. That's right. Get, get, yeah, yeah, get, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get rid of alcohol. And so what he would do is he would go around to all these small towns in middle America and he would start influencing elections mm-hmm. by trying to make sure that he can get dry candidates yep. into those seats. Yeah. And his and he was at, not only was he conniving, he was smart. Mm-hmm. And specifically, he said something to the effect of that he doesn't have to win all the elections. He just has to win just enough to get it a majority. Yeah. So he found the like 10, 15 He knew where he had to go to, to, to flip seats to get the right people in the right spots to, to get a majority. He was so powerful yeah. in Washington. That like House they, of Cards style. Yes. He yeah. was so powerful in Washington that like people were afraid of this dude. It, yeah. Like if you like cross this guy, he could get you out of your seat in no time just mm-hmm. because of the kind of political collections or connections that he had. It's and so it's, this is this is uh, this is what this is the uh, the, the late nineteen teens. Yes, yeah, this okay. was yeah, this was I think like, like post World War One, like well, I think before World War One was when it was brewing up. Right. Obviously, World War One comes, but he even used World War One as a reason for them to stop selling alcohol because he said, "Oh no, we got to concern our grain for you know the troops for you know bread, so yeah. we're gonna stop the sale of this." And he actually, I think he did that too. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually a, a thousand, and that's what I'm saying. How sneaky he is he? Will, mm. And what he would do is he would pitch alcohol as bad in many different lights to many different communities depending on what would resonate what would resonate with what audience yeah how often did alcoholism get um tied together with um what's what i'm looking for immigrants how often do you think probably not if you're talking to immigrants but if you're talking to people who are scared of immigrants well uh, all the immigrants are alcoholics exactly but if you're talking to immigrants they're there you probably say the opposite like oh, all the other people are alcoholics yeah, 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 they, yeah, all, all the people yeah. are, and that's what he yeah. would do yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. so so he had the catholics against the protestants the mm-hmm. protestants against the catholics they had all know, against alcohol yeah all and he and he would say the right thing at yep. the right time to uh-huh. try to get them against one another and so So, well, then the so his, his incentives then are like his goal was just get rid of alcohol. That was it. Like, he didn't give a shit about, like, oh, I don't want like fathers not taking care of their, their kids or whatever. Like, it was just, I don't want people drinking alcohol. Yeah. It, and so earlier, you remember the kind of key point that we honed in on yesterday was that intention piece mm-hmm. with the legalizing of drugs. Yeah. Like, what's the intention behind it? I think you're speaking yeah. towards that right now. 100%. Because, like, if... Like... But it's interesting, though, that what finally got prohibition through wasn't the, oh, we should... Like, men should spend time with their families on Sundays instead of going to church, or we should. It wasn't any of that. It was uh, alcohol's bad. People who drink alcohol are criminals. Like, it was just that plain and simple. And people went, Oh, yeah, let's, you know, and that was what got it through. Oh, enough because, of the right people. Yeah. Because, because I, I think that actually. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it the other way around, right? Because last week we were talking about legalizing stuff. So going from illegal to legal. Yeah, right. This week we're talking about going from legal, legal. to illegal. So, um, yeah. So how does that change your point? So, well, so what I was going to say is that, like, I know I, the, 
like mm-hmm. last week when we were arguing, you know, we, we were trying to say that, you know, or we were arguing that 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 we should legalize things. Um, it was it was like the exact opposite of it was sure, a, but I I yeah so like the, the the way at which the the which direction we're going mm-hmm, yeah right but however I still think that intention piece behind what direction you're going through holds true though oh yeah and yeah yeah, 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 I, yeah. I, I still think you're, it's still making the same point yeah that if you when the law was being so you made the amendment right so government time right you make the amendment 18 right alcohol Mm -hmm. is illegal that uh, by itself that didn't do that didn't actually enforce that regulation right and we talked about the volstead act yeah right and how was that written you know it was written like exactly like you said once you have alcohol you're now a criminal yeah we created criminals well so hold on i have a question though so what we didn't talk about last week is is and I'm actually not sure because like, when did, when did we introduce like the current system, like the current, the way we like class, like schedule one, schedule two, that kind of stuff. Like when, when did, and maybe not even that, maybe just a simpler question. When did like drugs become illegal? I'd say like the, like from the thirties to the sixties, I don't know, Josh, any, any time frame? Cause like, what we were just talking about, right? This guy who invented Coca Cola, he, he was using cocaine, like, like cocaine, and like that illegal. was, and that was totally cool. Like Matt, the um, answer to both your questions is 1970 with the Controlled Substances Act. The first regulation on marijuana was the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. Okay, 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 okay. So it's from the 30s through the 70s. Okay, but so, 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 but the time period we're talking about here, so 37, you said, Josh? 37. I mean, that's after prohibition. That's after yes that right and so it's this whole time right that we're talking about well alcohol is illegal we can be doing all kinds of drugs we they, but we did, did we know about I mean cannabis wasn't widely available at that point in time I, at least I don't think so cannabis was, it was a very which, it was definitely available what do you mean it wasn't available at the time it's a plant Mitch. But was it like had we invented the plant? Of yet? course, yes. we invented it. But so, like, but was it as re- was it as widely available as it is now? I don't. I, that I don't know. Well, no, I think I think the issue, I think the difference there is uh, the stigma with it. I think it was like uh, reefer madness, like the whole. But that's predating reefer madness. Um, I'm but, I, but, I, but where does reefer madness come from? Like, I think like it, it like I think in the years leading up to that, right? There was like an association with like oh, like black people, black like poor lazy people. Well, they, they they use the same tactics. You know? They use the same tactics yeah. that they did when they were trying to make. Mar- I, mean, uh, I think the more reasonable answer is probably just cultural differences. Alcohol is a more European concept. Marijuana is more Latin American. Yeah, that's another go. point. That's yeah. probably a, that's probably a, a way less offensive way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it comes from. Yeah, mostly south, and yeah, you know, I highly doubt someone who settled in Massachusetts is going to find that naturally. Yeah, like you, yeah, the Europeans in, uh, up in you know Plus Western it's Europe. Not, it's just not how just, the European people got their fix. They got it with with wine and beer. Yeah, and tobacco. Yeah, were they growing? Were they growing weed in Europe back in the day? I don't think. So. I don't think they could. I I don't think I'd like. It wasn't. It wasn't it warm wasn't enough. Hemp right? and marijuana was an early export back. I don't remember the year, but they did start bringing it back to Europe pretty soon. Oh, okay. Whenever they found, probably, oh, probably, whenever they find pro- it, yeah. Probably, probably 1492. 
when Columbus landed wherever he did down in the Oh, that dude Caribbean. definitely took some fucking pot, man. Yeah, because he landed down in the Caribbean. And so, I mean, like, you know, he definitely popped around over to Jamaica and shit like that and went, yeah, I'll take some of this. Yeah, uh, yeah. that dude said, I'll take all of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'll take uh, all of this. I'm going to have yeah. everything and you're going to have nothing. 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 Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so, but. So I guess what, like what we didn't talk about, like, so I, is how, how did, I mean, that could be a whole different, that might be a whole separate discussion, right? Is how, how did, how did drugs become illegal? Like, because I mean, the way alcohol, right. We just said that for those 10 years, whatever became illegal was that some, like there was all these movements trying around people going like, Oh, we should, it's let's people shouldn't beat their wives and you should spend time all that kind of stuff. And that didn't really work to get traction legally. What got traction legally was just some like, guy some white being guy going persistent around. in 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 pushing the the, the soundbite message of alcohol is bad right and so like is that what happened with drugs like was there just a guy was there like just a uh like a, a small maybe not one guy but like a small movement of people who just like pushed for like it, and just, drugs are bad all drugs are bad and and then just just like strong-armed it through washington or how did that happen like because because then the, the way, because what we're looking at right now is we're, we're, we're I, like, what I want to do is I want to compare how like prohibition ended with how I think the, the banning of drugs should end. Right. But before I even make that comparison, I want to know if that's any, a, a good comparison to make. Right. Because the way prohibition ended, right. It was that like people kind of st- started to realize, well, Hey, people are still drinking anyways. Right. It didn't solve any of the problems we thought it was going to, solve people are still going to be, be beating their wives people are still not going to church people are still right they're just getting all the stuff from the mob instead of from the liquor store and so we didn't address the problem like the problems are still there and so they said well okay we gotta we'll just we'll make alcohol legal again and maybe maybe we address the problem of husbands beating their wives in a different way and whether or not we did that that's a whole separate conversation yeah. but like when it comes to drugs then right if if when we made all drugs illegal right in in 1970 with a controlled substances act right if we if we said like all right drugs are no one can do drugs the, the i'm assuming i'm guessing here that the reason that they did that was they said well pe- drug users are a, a menace to society right they're bad people we want to cut down on drug users because they do bad things so let's make drugs illegal then uh you know you got to ask that well then does you know since uh since in the years since we've done that right ha- have we achieved the goal of of reducing you know the amount of uh harm done by drugs and things like that and there's a lot of studies that have that show that not really you know maybe not whatever and so if that's the case then 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 is that the argument for repealing that we, that it didn't work or or you know what I mean? Because that would be that would be the the if I were in charge of deciding like how we're gonna you know if I was the leader of the legalized drugs movement right which which I I don't I don't want to be I, I'm gonna make that clear <laughs> um, but um, that was that would be what I would do is I would try try to draw as many parallels as I could to prohibition because that's that's a everyone knows what it is right and like if you if you try to draw parallels between how why, how and why we made alcohol illegal how and why we versus how and why we made drugs illegal and then show that neither one of them accomplished their intended goal 
and then present a solution for, you know, so. But before I do any of that, I have no idea where that act in 1970 came from. So, and, um, I don't have that much knowledge of it. Do you, Josh, you, you were able to spit that out real quick. You have a quick backstory. Uh, not offhand. Not offhand. All right. Yeah. Well, so we'll save that for another one because I, I, I'm curious as well too. The well, my first like knee jerk, no research reaction is. 1971 is right after the 60s and we started doing a shit ton of drugs in the 60s everybody we're doing lsd yeah and so is, and so is it just yeah, a knee jerk response doing, to like the counterculture movement that, 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 that's my that, just, that's what hippies I, are bad so we gotta ban all drugs and what and what were the unintended consequences of that we could have an entire conversation of which is what a lot of historians view prohibition as is it's an act with unintended consequences like the amount of crime that ended up going up because of prohibition, mm -hmm. the kind of markets that they were able to create for the mob to take advantage of. Um, yeah. I don't think that they knew that they were going to do any of that. Yeah. Um, which was another really interesting thing about this whole movement is we talked about how it was uh, the women's temperance movement that started it and got the ball rolling and eventually was associated with the act while it was passing the group of people who led the charge against prohibition and ending up repealing it was also a women led group, which is also nuts. And they had, were all like, it was like a sect of the temperance well, I think movement. Well, I think because that, like, they broke also, away from it. They're yeah, like, because this is they, not what we had, it, we started doing. Well, not because what the, they realized like, well, Hey, our goal wasn't ban alcohol. That was what they thought they needed to do to achieve their goal. Uh -huh. The goal right at the temperance was like, Hey, we we want to we want our husbands to stop beating us. That's that's it. We just we just want to stop. We just want we, like it, it. It was the uh, women against abusive husbands movement, uh -huh. right? And so they thought, well, you know what? You know what causes abusive husbands? Alcohol. Let's ban it. They got it. They banned it, right? But they were still getting beaten. And so it was probably a bunch of women who said, well, wait a minute. Like we were, that didn't work. And, it, and so it, it's ac actually it got worse because now my husband's going to get drunk with the mob yeah. instead of get you know what I mean and like right it was I just thought it was a cool part in in our history to see how one movement was starting to go in a direction and then it ended up going so far in that direction that it lost you know a part of its its base yeah. which ended up kind of coming to end that initial cycle full mm -hmm. circle it was like just one of like those full circle moments that i really I, enjoyed i, I mean I, I think it it sounds kind of wacky if you think about it uh in terms of just kind of like what what they did right it was like oh they first they were for alcohol then they were against alcohol like that's fucking wacky like that they <laughs> right but like if you think about in terms of you know what we were talking about like their intentions right their intentions never changed they were they were consistent the whole time, right? And that and, and that makes the whole. It's like oh, it's not wacky at all. It actually makes a ton of sense that that's how that all went down, because you know the, the, their intention just led them to do that. And right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're still seeing impact from from this part of our history. I think in today, that do you see it at all today? From the from what? Just from from, from prohibition in general. Have you have you pondered about how you see it in today's culture at all? I think it I think it's impacted counterculture 
throughout most of history. I don't know. I don't have a good. Because uh... I see it today. Well, not necessarily today. But I see it. Now, now how do, what was the point I was going to make with where it was? It was a point in time where we wanted to stop. The government said we can create more moral people by telling them to not do something and they will stop doing it. That was what they thought was going to happen. And what ended up happening was we started doing that thing that they didn't want us to do in very, very different ways. And so the way that I see my own relationship with alcohol and how I see it's impacted my young life, going out to bars with friends, groups of people, staying out all night, dancing, drinking. I think none of that would have happened. I don't think any of that would have come to fruition if we didn't have this experience of it going into the underground for the time that it did. I think that that's kind of where the impact that I was seeing in my own experience today from what had happened in the past. You don't think, you don't think that, that you'd still go out to bars and, and not in the same way that we would now, because remember, so, so the difference between a saloon and a speakeasy was speakeasy. One of the big differences is speakeasy allowed women and you were allowed to like actually socialize. It wasn't like a men's, it, it didn't become a men's club anymore. It was just a community of people going there to drink. It wasn't, you know, somewhere where they were going, there'd just be bar fights and people shooting guns. Not that that didn't happen at speakeasies, but at least this was the perception that I was left from, from seeing the distinction between a saloon and a speakeasy. Mm-hmm. And I see that culture of, people filing in the tight rooms to all enjoy drinks on top of one another and be social. I, I just, I, you know, obviously outside of pandemic reality, I'm talking mm-hmm, mm-hmm, more so, you mm-hmm. know, but I see what you mean. You, yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? That, that kind of pre-prohibition, the idea of when you think of a, a crowded bar, it's, it's a, it, there's a lot of testosterone, right? It was it's, only, it's, it's, it was, it's, you, it's, 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 cowboys shooting whiskey and 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 yeah i gotcha it was like the boys it was like friday night was for the guys yeah yeah yeah. versus kind of post that you get yeah i see what you're saying Mm -hmm. that is interesting i never thought about that actually yeah where where like kind of that was what that the, the speakeasy was what like allowed uh like men and women to be on equal social footing Yes, because in a way, mm-hmm. in a way, right. Earlier, we talked about how yeah. blasphemous it was for that yeah. lady, Carrie Nation, to even go into a saloon because yeah. a saloon was not a place for for, for women. women. Yeah. But however, the speakeasy was the place for anybody that had a nickel and wanted a drink. Mm-hmm. Wow. And and like and it's that kind of community building that I actually kind of helped flourish. And, and that's what kind of ended up creating. Well, so, that, you know what? Though, at the same time, though, I also think that, I mean, like, some of the, I mean, you're, you're right that I think you that that was like the arena where that happened or that is an arena where that happened. But at the same time, I think to say that, that all of that is down to prohibition, I think is oversimplifying stuff. I mean, cause there was a lot going on, like in terms of like, like, like in 1920, right. Women had more rights in the United States, like than than they did ever before. Right. Like, yes. I mean, 
still not what they have today, but like, um, and so, and like, that was like, that was, that was happening. Right. And I think that was happening with or without prohibition. Um, I think just coincided, they just coincided nicely with each other. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, but see now that's the, now this is where I'll disagree and okay. say, I think that prohibition, again, we've been talking about the impact that women organizing and protesting this stuff together has had on this whole effect. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do think you are right in terms of being able to go into a bar mm-hmm. is not the extent of women having equal rights and men. Yeah. There's a shit ton of other things that would need to happen. It yeah, still yeah, need yeah. to happen. Yeah. But however, I do think that prohibition was kind of that first moment in American history where it was a big step towards, yeah, 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 yeah. Towards getting them on, on at least closer to an equal footing mm. of being able to have a political impact, a social impact and a life outside of their duties. You know, one of the reasons why early temperance movements uh, subsided, because if the women were out protesting, they left the men in charge to like take care of the house and they would just fuck and it up. Fell, and it fell apart. Everything fell apart. <laughs> it would just fuck up. <laughs> I mean, that, think about the reality of that. I mean, why is that so like, I mean, I'm so disappointed in, in, <laughs> I am too, man. in past generations of men, but like, I'm also not surprised even the slightest bit to hear that sentence that you just told me. Yeah, yeah, it, like, I, it's, that's not surprising in the slightest. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think, uh, so you know what, then maybe, maybe, maybe then is that, is this just like, was just kind of this one of the first times where it, it was really like women's roles in uh i guess we're just where they were like where they could like were viewed as, as they could have an impact right like oh without it you doubt. know what i mean like where um well who was who was before the temperance movement it was just like betsy betsy ross right wasn't she before that but they're all the founding fathers there's no American, you know, American politics that involved women back then. Social change that involved them. No, I think it was. I, I mean, maybe they're. I mean, like Harriet Tubman's before the, but I don't know if that's like no. pop. She's like politics, like. No, but she was. Yeah, she was definitely politics. politics oh yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Right. Yeah, dude. Legalizing slavery. That was like the, a political. She, hunt. she she didn't do that. No, she didn't do that. But she was helping though. In her own way. Well, that's what I mean, but like she, like, like she was around the time of the prohibition. She was in the time of the temperance movement. No, I understand that, but yeah. but what, what what are we talking about? What did what? you ask? I didn't ask a question. You were you just brought up you brought up Harriet Tubman, and I said, yeah, she's a, she's an example of a women political figure. Oh, I said prior to the early eighteen hundreds. I said, like, prior to when this movement started, I don't think there was Betsy Ross. Was there another political, you know, national woman hero before that? I don't think so. This is when you first started hearing about it was like the Harriet Tubman's and this Lady Carrie Nation. There's and there's a thousand others that I'm forgetting. Yeah. Obviously not in history, but within like American history. That's at least from one of the things that I took away from it. I was like, this thing was like started by women, ended mm-hmm. by women. Yeah. Which is cool, full circle. 
Josh, I feel like I um, boxed you out a little bit here, man. I'm sorry about that, brother. All good, man. I'm yeah. here. You here? What's are, is your is there sirens going off at your at your place? You good? Oh yeah, I, I live in on the busiest street for like three towns. So oh geez, sirens all the time. Yeah. How long till you got uh, used to that? Oh, that doesn't take very long to get used to. So my freshman and sophomore dorm building outside of the window was the one train stop, the last stop on the one train. So getting used to the subway parking and the, the train, the train yard, like for the one train was also like a block away from where my building was. So getting used to the sounds of not only them like pulling in and out of the stations, but also like docking into like the train yard for the night was a little bit of a hurdle for me to get over. I hope it's not quite that loud where you're at over there. Nope. Not that bad. You guys got anything else, man? No, I think so. No, I'm very good. I, you guys, one of you want to take it out there? I still don't know any of the tags. Matt's looking at me. All right, fine. <laughs> All right. You got, well, you, you got the radio voice, bro. You got to do it. No, oh, please. I think Matt probably has the best speaking voice of the three of us. But no way. I think you do, dude. I, I, I think that's Matt. But anyway, uh, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at YCBS Pod. Uh, Mitch doesn't have a Twitter. Matt doesn't have a Twitter. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you want to hit us up on YouTube, check it out. Videos of all the recent podcast episodes from like episode 20-something on. So check it out on YouTube. And uh, if you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at uh, ycbspod at gmail.com. And uh, I guess until next Friday, y'all have a good one. Peace. Good night, guys.